research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose corruption, cronyism, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. And as always, I'm joined by author and vice president of the Government Accountability Institute, Eric Eggers. I remember my parents talking about it around the dinner table. Where were they when JFK was shot? For my generation, we recall something similar. Where were we when the 9-11 attacks unfolded? Eric, where were you? I was in college, and um, I was uh, in the habit of looking for any excuse to leave class early. And uh, and this is you know pre-internet, pre-smartphones. And so as word trickled out that something had happened in at the World Trade Centers, I think um, I took it to the house and watched the news like many, many Americans for the yep. remaining several days of that week. People gathered around uh, in shock and horror at what had happened. Uh, the imagery, we don't need to uh, go into details. Just remember people trying to escape the buildings and the heat of the buildings of the Twin Towers any way that they could. Uh, we're now at the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and where exactly are we is what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, thank God there have been no other major attacks that we've faced since there. That is a compliment, uh, I think, to our men and women in uniform, uh, whether that is police, whether that is uh, military, uh, because there's no question the world is filled with people who want to launch those kinds of attacks. And certainly looking back at 9-11, it's transformative in a way perhaps unlike any other recent event. Transformative is one of those words that get used a lot, uh, but we think it's absolutely true here. I mean, in the case of JFK's assassination, horrific national horror, uh, that was the assassination of a president. Uh, we ended up enclosing presidents, not letting them drive around in right. open cars anymore. Yeah, we made adjustments about a specific type of office holder yes. after JFK, not adjustments to the entire country or an entire method of travel or industry. That's exactly right. And when Pearl Harbor uh, happened, of course, uh, another sort of sneak attack um, that led to the outbreak uh, or our involvement, I should say, in World War II. But of course, Pearl Harbor was distant. It was not a state yet. Hawaii was not a state. It was halfway around the world. This happened in the United States, in the heart of America itself. Uh, the Washington Post uh, has a uh, poll out. I don't know how much we can believe all their polls, but uh, this one rings true to me. Uh, it, they asked... Uh, you know, has America changed for the worse or for the better because of 9-11? 46% believe it's changed for the worse. 33% believe it has changed for the better. And it's important to look at how those numbers have tracked over the last 20 years. They asked the same question in 2002. So the year after 9-11, 55% of the country said, no, 9-11 has changed us for the better. 10 years later in 2011, only 39% thought 9-11 had changed us for the better. That number is now down to 33%, right? So less yeah. than so a third of the country says, yes, we're better as a result of 9-11. And it, it is interesting to think of 9-11 in the context of JFK and 
Pearl Harbor. Obviously, Pearl Harbor got us into World War II. So, yeah. uh, you know, pretty dramatic impact on the nation. Yeah. Tr- pretty dramatic impact on our culture and society. Uh, JFK, less so. And I think what's what's interesting is after 9-11, I think people thought of like, hey, this is World War II, like Pearl Harbor. Like, what is this collective call for uh, our sacrifice nationally? And then, you know, then President George W. Bush was somewhat criticized for saying, well, we need you to go out and shop, right? Right, And right. so there wasn't necessarily this collective investment in some sacrificial thing. But now 20 years later, when you look at some of the changes and some of the industries that have been spawned, uh, the companies that made a lot of money off of some of the policies that we enacted post 9-11, I think it's interesting, maybe not so much stuff that uh, we've given up, but maybe things that have been taken from us. Yep, that, that's I think that's exactly right. And that's what we're going to focus on here today. Uh, we are indeed uh, enormously thankful there have been no more attacks on us. But we're going to talk a little bit today about balancing our security, balancing our freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the costs that we've actually uh, played? And we're also going to look at, at sort of the inner bowels, the sort of dirty bowels of the national security decision making process. And I want to think a little bit about this in the context today of an old saying If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And the question is, if you're actually selling hammers, uh, does that make even more things uh, look like a nail? Um, And the question is, uh, really, Eric, um, as we look at the first part of the conversation today is, is our national security policy really being driven by the best policy choice or are there other influences that are perhaps playing a role here? Yeah. So there's some obvious winners, right? And there's some obvious companies that stands to reason 20 years later. They would have been in a position to profit and they, you know, they have a very important role to play yep. in protecting the country in the aftermath of terrorist attacks. So some of these major defense contractors, companies like Raytheon, companies like Lockheed Martin, companies like General Dynamics, they've seen profound profits and profound increases in their stock prices since 9-11. It's important to remember that, you know, the stock market since September 10th, 2001 to today is up 264%. Yep. Right? So, I mean, you know, that's just what happens in 20 years. Uh, but some of these companies have seen tripling nearly of that kind of rate. Yeah. So so uh, you had about 200% with the broad markets in September the 10th. Lockheed Martin, a major, major defense contractor, up 845% during the same time. General Dynamics up 425%. Boeing up 411%. Northrop Grumman, another major defense contractor, up 886%. So vastly outperforming the stock market. And it's interesting in this context because, of course, 9-11 happened, it sort of took us out of this slumber of what people thought was going to be the peace dividend after right. the Cold War. That clearly didn't happen. But there's another interesting phenomenon here, Eric, beyond just defense companies doing well in the context of 9-11. And that is how our decision makers might be influenced um, by their own commercial interests uh, based on their connections to the defense contract. So look at companies like Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics. Is there a revolving door uh, with the Pentagon? Well, if you if you mean that former secretaries of defense under various <laughs> presidential administrations have gone to work for defense contractors after, after leaving those positions, then yes. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. So Lockheed Martin, for example, has hired 42 former senior military officials from the Department of Defense. General Dynamics has hired eight former military officials. Boeing has hired 22, Northrop Grumman 24. 
But in particular, if you look at the last two Secretary of Defenses we've had, Mark Esper in the Trump administration and the current Secretary of Defense, they have interesting ties as well, don't they? Yeah, both Lloyd Austin and Mark Esper have uh, either worked for uh, or work with currently Raytheon Technologies, right? Raytheon has, uh, you know, Mark Esper and Lloyd Austin among 22 former senior military officials from the Department of Defense that Raytheon has hired in the last, uh, you know, 20 years. It's probably worth taking a closer look at Raytheon. It's one of those companies that people may have heard of but are not quite familiar with. Uh, this is a U.S. defense contractor uh, that is active in all kinds of areas. Uh, they don't produce per se, uh, you know, tanks and guns, but they produce a lot of the guts of our military establishments. They're involved in um, a, a lot of surveillance, electronic uh, capabilities for the military. They're involved in uh, some of the missile technology. I mean, that's a big big, big growth area uh, since 9-11 has been the development of precision guided munitions, as they call them, uh, to reach out and strike. But it's also not just an American defense company. They have strong ties because, of course, they do huge business with a lot of foreign governments in the Middle East and, and elsewhere. Including Qatar, correct? Including Qatar, which is a regime that has not always been precisely uh, mm -hmm. best uh, allies with the United States, uh, has some very shady ties with uh, governments that don't want good things from the United States. Uh, this is also a company, by the way, that's in news for other reasons, um, uh, has been criticized because uh, this defense contractor wants to be woke, uh, which is kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting juxtaposition. You're part of the military industrial complex and you want to be woke. That's because of their uh, apparent interest in things like critical race theory and others. So it's important to understand that when you're dealing with defense companies, they are large, complex beings that have a lot of foreign ties, uh, that have a lot of vested interests. And the way that wars are fought now, as opposed to, say, the first Gulf War, has a lot to do with companies like Raytheon pushing these kinds of precise military instruments. So the question is, what effect does this have on the decision-making process? And oftentimes, when you're talking about governments, um, they want to create the impression that, you know, these decisions are hermetically sealed, mm -hmm. right? They're just making the best national security decision based on what they see as the threat assessment and what are the tools that we have uh, to respond to that threat. The question here is, and I think it's a very important one, is, is that influenced at all by the personal commercial interests that our decision makers have? And it, believe, it, it, it seems to me that it's impossible, it's impossible to separate the commercial interests that individuals have with the government-based decisions that they're going to make. I mean, this is the reason, for example, why elected officials and senior executives are required to disclose what their financial investments are, right. because we recognize this is a problem. The difficulty with the revolving door is the door spins in and out. You're going in, you're going out, and you don't know where they're going to go. And sometimes you don't know what private conversations they might be having about what they're going to do after they leave or when they are in uh, a defense contractor uh, company, uh, that they're in conversations about going into the Pentagon. It's a massive, massive problem. And I love our military. I love our uh, national security 
security decision makers. They perform such a valuable role. But the idea that they are not influenced or affected in any way by this, uh, I think, is ridiculous. Well, it's a tough juxtaposition, too, right? Because, I mean, here we are on, on the heels of everything that's happened in Afghanistan over the last month, two months. And so it's tough to look at some of these companies and the profound profits that they've made and these military officials that have gone on to personal enrichment as part of this revolving door process that you just documented and compare it with the stark reality on the ground in terms of what's what we lost and what we tried to win in Afghanistan with unfortunately not terrific results. Yeah, that's exactly right. Afghanistan did not go well. Again, not because of the soldiers, the brave men and women and the Marines who fought uh, so valiantly, but because of the decision makers Mm -hmm. and the strategic decisions they made uh, and how they chose to respond to them. Um, But let's look at the two most recent secretaries of defense, uh, Mark Esper uh, in the Trump administration. He was a lobbyist, right? He was a lobbyist for a major defense contractor, Raytheon, I believe. Yes, he was, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to make sure I got the company right. And Lloyd Austin, the current secretary of defense, was on the board of directors of which defense contractor? Also Raytheon. Also Raytheon. So Raytheon is quite well juiced in. Well, and speaking of uh, being woke and how we fight wars, I think, so the idea that defense contractors have made a lot of money since 9-11, maybe not overly shocking, maybe not overly revelatory. People are like, come on, Schweitzer, give me something I didn't know. (laughs) But I think what the second kind of takeaway from our research into what's part of the legacy of 9-11 that maybe people don't realize, the way we fight wars now, right, increasingly relies on technology and increasingly relies on uh, access to data. And so these companies that when you think about woke companies, you might not think about Raytheon, you might think about companies like Facebook, companies like Google, companies like these Silicon Valley companies. And I think a lot of people might be surprised to know that just how closely allied in the aftermath of 9-11 Some of these allegedly woke Silicon Valley companies have become with the defense industrial complex. I'm glad you said that, Eric. Me too. Because part two of the conversation is about the costs of 9-11 and specifically what we're going to call the 9-11's surveillance state. Uh, You remember the attacks happened on 9-11 and then we had uh, uh, shortly after that, months after that, uh, the push for and the passage of the Patriot Act. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie The Departed, right, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon, Alec Baldwin. They're on the surveillance thing and he's like, the Patriot Act, I love it. (laughs) Like if you were in law enforcement, you love you some Patriot Act. Yeah, absolutely. You love the Patriot Act. And the Patriot Act at the time and, and still today is kind of controversial, but it's really interesting how the conversation's gone way beyond the Patriot Act. What the Patriot Act basically said was that the federal government, intelligence agencies, the FBI, had uh, the ability, without getting a specific warrant, to monitor certain communications involving individuals who had contacts, uh, alleged contacts, with terrorist organizations. Um, That seems so quaint uh, today when we live in an era where large major companies like Google and Facebook uh, and others collect an enormous amount of personal data on us without our knowledge. Um, They're not monitoring conversations, but they are monitoring conversations. They know what is being said over Twitter. They know what we're saying when we message each other on Facebook. And this is one of the interesting things about uh, the rise of the surveillance state. Here's the other thing, by the way, that's blurred the lines with a Patriot Act. 
the federal government could only monitor communications if you were in conversation with known foreign terrorists who were planning violent acts. That has now broadened to include any conversations involving a potential conspiracy. Mm. Not very well defined, right? Conspiracy can mean lots of things. I mean, this podcast is probably considered a conspiracy. Exactly. I'm sure they are monitoring this. Um, we appreciate uh, uh, those agents uh, downloading this podcast. Well, I say it's I prob- they're probably responsible for the massive surge in downloads we've experienced <laughs> recently, right? We, we think it's because we're growing in popularity. No, 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 no. It's just because we're being actively monitored by law enforcement. <laughs> That's exactly right. But, you know, when you when you think about monitoring, you think about the FBI. Uh, okay. You think about Google. But Target, even retailers like Target, in a sense, are monitoring people in a way that seems so quaint when we think about the Patriot. What did Target actually do? Yeah. And I think this is kind of what spurred this line of of research and for the discussion of this episode. So Target got in trouble uh, a few years ago because, like you know, like almost every major retailer, I mean, grocery stores, even the post office is using something called a predictive and analytics department. And so they basically want to say, OK, what do we know people are doing? And then what can we use based on what we know people are doing to predict what we think they'll do? And so they track, you know, online activity, they track all kinds of different things. And so one of the things Target was doing was predicting customers that they thought were pregnant right now. Uh, you know this because you have children. I have children. It makes sense that companies would want to know when you're pregnant because that's big business. Yes, right? it is. Spend I mean, a lot of money. Lots of money on yeah. lots of silly, silly things. <laughs> yes. Like it's ridiculous how much money we spend <laughs> right. on, on pregnancies. But um, but it's obviously big business for Target. So they start targeting, no pun intended, these potential customers. And so they sent something to this teenage girl's home saying, hey, looks our, our model suggests <laughs> congratulations are in order. Well, terrific for her, maybe not so terrific for her father who didn't know she was pregnant. And Uh-oh. he actually went to the store and accused her of, you know, I mean, it kind of got real messy real quick. But the idea that a company like Target has access to information that when they know people are pregnant, even before people's families know they're pregnant, just suggests how much insight these companies have in terms of our behavior and our lives. Now, you and I produced a film that came out a few years ago called The Creepy Line, and we kind of got into Google and we kind of got into Facebook and how much access they have to us, what they know about us, and what that enables them to do. Well, guess who else is really interested in what Google and Facebook and other companies know about us? The Defense Department. Yes. And so, and the CIA. And the CIA, right? And basically, anybody involved in the national security business. So Facebook, you know, occasionally these companies, you know, the the NSA, the CIA, they come and they ask Facebook for information about potential people, right? Facebook shares that information 74% of the time with the government. And since 2010, the government's ask for information from Google has gone up 510%. And it's gone up 364%, the amount of information that the government asks for Facebook just on U.S. citizens. So I think it's really interesting, the idea of how much data these private companies are giving to the government. And that's quite honestly, a legacy of 9-11 and the Patriot Absolutely. Act. Absolutely. The notion, not only the Patriot Act, but the notion that people are prepared to give up uh, part of their digital privacy mm-hmm. in the in the name of the of the of the larger good. And of course, when it when you're fighting terrorists, when you're looking at impending attacks, that certainly makes sense. You have to wonder how much it makes sense on on some of these other areas. But, you know, we've talked about uh, the uh, federal government. Yep. We've talked about teen pregnancy. <laughs> we've talked about Facebook. Always nice when you can 
work that in. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, but but we have to talk about this little known company called InQtel. Now, InQtel uh, was founded in 1999. This is it, wild. To me. Yes, yes. This is it's a, it's a venture capital of fund in Silicon Valley, uh, pretty much like any other, except for the fact Silicon Valley known for lots of cutting edge, exactly. uh, you know, venture capital firms. Exactly. So what's you, what's unique about and that? And you got got guys walking around in hoodies and t-shirts, right. you know, blowing billions of dollars on investment deals. In this particular case, the investor behind uh, a InQtel or IQQT is the Central Intelligence Agency. And the purpose of InQtel is to uh, foster technologies in Silicon Valley that can be used by our intelligence services to do their job. Now, what's very interesting is in 2016, uh, there was a document that was leaked that looked at who was getting funding from InQtel. And what's curious about this is what the area of focus was. They found that the research interest for InQtel was social media mining and surveillance companies. Hmm. And they funded companies like Data Miner, uh, Paythar, Transvoyant, and others. So, Hang on. I'm sorry. Can you say that again? I was, I was taking one of those IQ tests on Facebook. They're totally innocuous <laughs> and don't give away any of my intelligence or any information about me. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. And so it leads to this question of when you are on social media, um, what is happening with that data and what is the role that the federal government's playing? Because you have now these hybrid uh, companies where the major investor is actually a U.S. intelligence agency. That's right. IQT even created a special technology laboratory in Silicon Valley to, quote, provide tools for the intelligence community to connect the dots in large sets of data. I mean, we've heard from a lot of different people that data is the new oil, right? Uh, that is to say it's worth a lot of money. And uh, but I would say it's even potentially more valuable than oil because, I mean, oil, it's a commodity. It helps people move. Data helps you find and identify the people that are moving. Right. It gives you a lot more insight. That's exactly right. And of course, the question we have to ask is this uh, relationship between big data and the federal mm -hmm. government, the national security state done in the name of fighting terrorism. But now there are other threats that have been identified by our intelligence agencies. So the question is, does the monitoring extend to those areas and what does it include? Does it include global warming, for example, which is now seen as a major threat uh, by our intelligence agencies? Is that going to be somehow used to justify monitoring uh, conversations or information related to issues that are have nothing to do with violence or terrorism? You know, I think it's I mean, it's it is sort of terrifying the idea of what people have access to and what they feel empowered to or what the law allows them to track and what they might do with it. I mean, just to be clear, one of the companies that InQtel funds is a company called Data Miner. And according to that Intercept article, they directly license a stream of data from Twitter, right? So they get the yep. back end yep. data from Twitter and they're able to use that to try to discern larger trends, allegedly in the name of national security, but who knows what they're doing with it, right? Exactly and it's not right. just it's not just like data posts, it's uh, geographic things. I mean, I, I remember I was out in uh, Nevada a few months ago and I got an alert on my phone and we live in Florida. So this kind of stuff has never happened to me, but you go to another state and all of a sudden you get in this alert that, Hey, you have just been around potentially a COVID hotspot. Do you want to get alerts and awareness? And I'm just like, what? Yeah. How, do, how do you know that? Yeah. 
They know that. Why? Because they're monitoring mm -hmm. your movement and they're monitoring the movements of other people. And in fact, this is something that the CDC has been doing since 2020. Yeah. Uh, and they would argue, again, they're doing it out of the, the national interest. But when you start to broaden the definition, when you go beyond, we are trying to prevent this violent act of terrorism to say, we've got these other issues. We've got a pandemic. We've got global warming. We've got other issues we're concerned about. Monitoring becomes something that becomes acceptable and commonplace. Remember, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That applies to the federal government when they have your data, too. When the global warming thing matters, and not to sound crazy, or, or to be labeled a conspiracy, which will only get us more attention from data and miner more, and the more CIA. More downloads by the federal government. That's right. But I mean, if the CDC has declared global warming to be a national health crisis, right, which I believe they have, yes. then it becomes a slippery slope of, okay, so I mean, 9-11, hey, this is a crisis, so we have to do these things, right? Right. Well, now what's a new crisis? Well, COVID's a crisis. So, okay, global warming's a crisis. So can we track how much you're driving because we can connect Schweitzer's not environmentally friendly gas guzzler, <laughs> right? So the more you drive, then right. I mean, I just, it, I mean, it seems kind of crazy, but 20 years ago, would you have thought that a company would know when you're pregnant and send you targeted ads? Yeah, no, exactly. And the Department of Homeland Security recently floated the idea uh, that they want to start monitoring conversations on social media and elsewhere, not specifically involving planning acts of violence, but, but just general conspiracies, anti-government conspiracies. That's the kind of slippery slope that a lot of people are concerned about. And unfortunately, just based on events from the last five to six years, it doesn't look like the relationship between the Department of Defense and the National Security Industrial Complex and big tech is getting less allied. It's actually getting closer. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting you brought that up because there is this little known entity in the Pentagon uh, that was started under President Obama called the Defense Innovation Board. Sounds super innocuous, right? It does. Defense, you know, who's- <laughs> Oh, wait, are you against the defense? <laughs> are you against innovation? That's right. I mean, I'm anti-boards just because meetings are terrible, yeah. <laughs> but it's fine. Exactly. And, and, and that's the thing. I mean, they always wrap these things in these wonderful names. But the Defense Innovation Board uh, was set up, um, and what they essentially did was they brought in all the bigwigs from Silicon Valley. They brought in Eric Schmidt from Google Alphabet. They brought in Jeff Bezos from Amazon. They brought in the head of LinkedIn. Uh, they brought in other people from, uh, you know, other tech companies. You got Neil deGrasse Tyson's in the house, right? Neil, Walter yeah. Isaacson. Yes, exactly. And they are supposed to advise the future course and direction of technology policy and technology acquisition for the Pentagon. So again, the question is, do we honestly believe that Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt are not going to be pushing products or services that their companies provide? Of course they are. And just to show you kind of how how close everything kind of works, right? So this Defense Innovation Board, the inaugural executive director is a guy named Josh Marcuse, yep. who'd worked as a senior advisor for policy innovation in the Secretary of Defense office, right? Yep. So he gets this job with the DIB in August 2016, and he's there until March of 2020, right? right. Leaves, uh, right, you know, right before the... And where did he go? Uh, where did he go, right? Well, uh, he went to Google, actually. <laughs> says, fun fact. <laughs> that same year, like he leaves in March 2020. In May of 2020, Google announces Mark Hughes is joining the organization as head of strategy and innovation for the global public sector, right? So another example of this revolving door that I think, you know, your point is, hey, we've seen it 
revolving door between the defense department and these military contractors. And that model certainly exists. Lots of people make lots of money off that model, but the new model, right, which kind of now works in concert and arguably more important for American people, right? Because are you going to be, are you under threat of being attacked by a missile from Raytheon? Probably not. I certainly hope not while I'm in the room. (laughs) Exactly. But, uh, you know, could we potentially be impacted by the relationship between the U.S. government and big data? Well, if you, have a, if you have a Gmail account, yeah, right? If you have a Facebook account, yeah. If you're on Twitter, yeah. That's exactly right, because wars are increasingly going to be fought not just with missiles, but in cyberspace. This is the big growth area uh, that you're seeing. So it stands to reason uh, that they're going to take an intense interest in this area and that it's going to affect us. So that brings us to really a fundamental question as we look right. back at 9-11. It's been 20 years, and again... Uh, God bless that we have not suffered a serious attack. And again, it's a great testament to a, a you know wonderful people who protect us every day. Cops on the beat who are looking for suspicious packages to, uh, you know, military uh, analysts who are tracking terrorist cells. Um, we have focused so much on our physical selves, mm. protecting us physically, which, of course, is key because if if we're under threat physically, it can destroy us. But there's this notion of a digital self, Eric, a physical self and a digital self. What, what do you what do you mean when you say uh, or think about a digital self? What's well, like that avatar you have that's an overly flattering digital portrayal of your physical self, right? No, makes you look thinner and better <laughs> so, yeah. looking. Right? But look at how thick Schweitzer's hair is. Dang. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's actually one of the takeaways that we got when we did this film, The Creepy Line, which again I'd recommend anybody check out. It's on Amazon. But it, one of the the concepts we explore is, yeah, we, we exist physically. We have we live in the physical world. Yes. But it's taken us a long time. In fact, we're still adjusting to how to care for our physical selves yep. in the physical environment, right? Like it, we didn't come up with seatbelts till the 50s, right? We, right? we quit pouring chemicals in rivers in the 70s, right? right? Yep. We're still learning yep. how to take care of our physical selves. We've only had digital selves, right? We, this existence that we have online and in cyberspace for 20 years. Right. And so we're still very much trying to figure out how to care for and what safeguards should exist to protect our digital selves. Uh, Companies like Facebook, companies like Google, and apparently the U.S. government have figured out how they can monitor our digital selves. But the question is, you know, what safeguards should exist? And I think that remains a key question that we'll be asking. That's a question that sort of was accelerated, I think, in part by the Patriot Act and by the legacy of 9-11. That's exactly right. And we need to have this conversation because it's not just about our physical safety and integrity. It's about our digital safety and integrity and protecting that. And that's one of those, I think, interesting side effects of 9-11. It woke us to the world of terrorism and direct terrorist threats to us. Uh, that physical threat remains, especially now that Joe Biden uh, has, has uh, handed over Afghanistan uh, back to the Taliban, which, of course, Remember, uh, that's where uh, the 9-11 plotters were based out of Afghanistan. So that threat remains. But we have to constantly monitor and respect and understand the fact that there are all sorts of people that want to compromise and threaten our digital selves. And that threat is not only from overseas. It's not only from our federal government. It's also from these big tech companies. And again, you know, we, we cover a lot of this information about physical selves, digital selves, and this documentary we did on The Creepy Line, which is available on Amazon Prime. So you can search for The Creepy Line on Amazon Prime. If you've seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, it, it came out way before that one. So, I mean, you know, we're not suing for copyright, but I'm saying that somebody got us. 
but we'll also have a link to it up at thedrilldown.com. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. We've talked about Raytheon and missile strikes. We've talked about baby diapers. We've given you a lot to chew on. But the bottom line is we need to be concerned about our digital selves and we need to monitor constantly the threats that we face. Don't you think, Eric? Well, and the threat of your teen daughter, right? I mean, don't take it for granted uh, just because they get a mail-in thing. No, but there's a lot to think about. It's a lot to talk about. Look, the world has changed dramatically in 20 years. And I think what we're trying to cover today in 30 minutes is just the idea of you think about the legacy of 9-11, you think about the wars in Afghanistan, you think about the wars in Iraq. But I think what maybe people don't realize is, A, 9-11, the post 9-11 uh, you know, wars have been big business for these defense contractors. So we talked about this, but it's also been big business for these tech corporations. And one of the lines that we give away in, in this film, and I think it's very much true, when you use technology, if you can't figure out what the product is, you're the product. And you being the product might also end up meaning you're a product, not just for companies like Facebook and Google, but also for the Department of Defense. That's exactly right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, on The Drill Down. If you're interested in hearing more of our podcast, you can go to thedrilldown.com. Thanks so much for joining us.